Where are we going today, Mr. Peabody? Ah, yes, his head's been ripped off. I'll get you another. So let it be written. So let it be done. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. We are in week two of our lockdown for the coronavirus. As I mentioned last week, I, I try to make these episodes evergreen, but the reality of our world these days is that we're in the midst of a lockdown where we can't go anywhere because we're trying to avoid the spread of the coronavirus. I'm not going to focus on that in this episode or in any of the episodes because I know that people are dealing with this on a daily basis. So all I'm going to say is that we're in the midst of our lockdown. I'm saying that for perspective. And it does color what I'm trying to do with the podcast. Basically, the podcast is for entertainment, so I want to entertain you. I want you to have a good time when you listen to the podcast. And so today's story time is going to be a true story. I did this back in season one. I read to you a story from the storybooks that I had as a kid. They were called Book House. And for those who don't remember or didn't hear the episode, Book House was an anthology of stories that was about 12 or 14 volumes long. And each of the volumes was geared towards a certain age group. The earlier volumes, 1, 2, 3, 4, were more for younger kids, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. They got more advanced and more complex stories and more detailed stories for the older kids. So I previously read to you from Bookhouse, and I'm going to do that again today, kind of as a distraction. Something to listen to instead of all of the news that's around us that's consuming our day-to-day. Don't worry, I have plenty more stories and plenty more ideas for other podcasts, but I also find reading stories and getting away from the day-to-day by diving into a story to be distracting and comforting. One of the reasons I wanted to go back to Bookhouse is because they have some of the classic stories that I grew up with that we don't hear anymore. These stories don't really exist for our kids. Not that there's anything wrong with the kids' books these days, but one of the reasons that I think that I have a lot of historical knowledge and a lot of historical interest is because some of the stories that I grew up with were historical stories. Things like The Legend of William Tell and The Knights of the Round Table. A lot of the stories that I was read when I was a kid were Greek myths and Norse myths, Thor and Zeus and Apollo and all those. I learned about those because I heard stories about them when I was a kid. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to share stories with you from Bookhouse today is because it tells us stories that you may not have heard of. Now, Bookhouse, just so you know, you can find it in antique shops, at garage sales, at auctions. It's like a set of encyclopedias, 12 volumes or so, 12 or 14 volumes, with a variety of stories in there. And they came out in various years. The volume that I'm reading from today came out in 1920. Yeah, 100 years ago. But they compiled these stories from a lot of authors, a lot of sources. I'm just looking at the table of contents right now. For instance, Hiawatha's Fasting, a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem. That's in this volume. Recollections of the Arabian Nights, Alfred Tennyson. That's in this volume. Then they have a story called Little Man as Big as Your Thumb with Mustaches Seven Miles Long. It's not attributed to any author. It's just called A Russian Tale. So they compiled all of these stories in these volumes of books called it Bookhouse, and you could read virtually any kind of story or have your parents read it to you if you couldn't read. The story today is from the volume called The Treasure Chest. It's volume four of the 1920 series. And I thumbed through and I saw a lot of the stories that I remember as a kid. And the one that I landed on for today is called The Labors of Hercules. It's not attributed to any author. It's just called A Greek Myth. 
Now, we've all heard of Hercules. There's the Disney movie. There's the tales we read in high school. Well, some of us read in high school. I remember this version from when I was a kid. And so I thought I'd share it with you as just a little snapshot of the stories that I grew up with. Now, as I was reading over it today in anticipation of doing today's podcast, I realized that a lot of the language is kind of archaic sounding. It's kind of old sounding. It sounds like a really old book. And it is. It's 100 years old. This is language that was used in stories for kids 100 years ago. So I'm going to try to do it justice. I'll try not to butcher any of the pronunciations because they don't make any of the pronunciations easy. These are the original names and the original words. I'm not going to edit this for clarity. I'm just going to read it straight out. So if it sounds like I'm talking in a stilted language, this is the way they used to write stories. So anyway, here we go. The Labors of Hercules. And yes, I'm going to go into reading voice. Among all the Greek heroes about whom the old Greek harpers sung, who was more dearly loved than Hercules? Hercules the patient, Hercules the strong. When Hercules was but a babe a few months old, his mother, Alcmene, left him once asleep in a brazen warrior shield that served him for a cradle. There came creeping upon him while he slept two venomous serpents. Just as the snakes were about to strike, Hercules awoke. With a crow of delight, as though he had found a new plaything, and without a sign of fear, the little ones seized the serpents, one in each hand. Straight by the neck he grasped them and held on tight. When his mother came in and found him thus, she was struck almost dumb at the sight. But the snakes were already strangled, and the infant Hercules safe. So began the strong man's conquests over evil. Hercules grew to manhood, possessed of marvelous courage and strength, and carefully trained in all that befitted a hero. One day, when he was still a youth, dwelling for a time among herdsmen on the mountains, he lay down in a lonely valley to sleep through the noonday heat. In his sleep, he had a strange dream. He seemed to be following a path that suddenly split into two, branching off in opposite directions, and he knew not which road to take in order to pursue his journey. One road looked broad and easy and led down to a pleasant city, whence he saw the gleam of marble palaces mid green and tempting gardens. The other was steep and rocky. It was hard to climb and led endlessly upward, growing rockier and rougher at every step till it disappeared in the clouds. As Hercules stood hesitating which road to choose, there came dancing down the smooth and easy highway a gay and laughing maiden. She beckoned to him and called, Come with me, Hercules, down into the pleasant city. There you need not labor all day long in the heat of the sun. You may sit continually in fragrant gardens, hearken to the plash of fountains and the songs of birds, and slaves will serve you with all you need. As Hercules looked toward the city, the piping of merry music faintly reached his ears to invite and tempt him further. But lo, just then, in the second path, appeared a second young maiden, quite different from the first. She wore plain white garments, and her eyes were grave, yet quiet, sweet, and calm. My sister deceives you, Hercules, said she. The pleasant things offered you down below are not worth the having. They are toys of which you will tire in a day, and must be bought with a price of which you little dream. Do not descend thither, but climb the mountain path with me. You will find it rough and difficult, tis true. Yet, breasting its heights, you will there find real delights, of which you can never tire. Moreover, if you have the courage to climb, this road will lead you to Mount Olympus itself, and there you shall live forever with the gods who cannot die. And then in his dreams, Hercules turned his back on the gay and laughing maiden and took the mountain road. Thus did he choose the labors by means of which he turned his strength to good account for men. Now Hercules had a cousin named Eurystheus, king of Mycenae, who was a few days older than he. 
It had therefore been decreed that Hercules should be the slave of Eurystheus, and in all things serve and obey him, only on condition that he successfully performed twelve tasks that Eurystheus should set him, could he ever again be free. When Hercules presented himself at the court of King Eurystheus, he was already remarkable for his broad shoulders and the enormous muscles of his arms, while Eurystheus was miserably puny, timid, frail, and weak. When Eurystheus for the first time beheld his powerful cousin, he was terrified at his strength, and he resolved to set him the hardest and most dangerous tasks that wit of man could possibly devise. At this time in the beautiful grove that surrounded the temple of Jupiter in Nemea, a fierce lion had its den. This lion was laying waste the whole countryside, so the people lived in constant terror of its ravages. The first task which Eurystheus set Hercules was to kill the Nemean lion. The young man set out with only his bow and arrow for weapons, but as he journeyed along, he found a sturdy olive tree by the roadside. With a single wrench, he pulled up the whole stout tree by its roots and made himself a club. As he drew nearer the lion's haunts, nowhere did he meet with man, woman, or child, for all had been so terrified that they kept within doors, leaving their flocks to its mercy. At length, Hercules came to the beautiful grove by the temple of Jupiter, and there he watched all day long. Towards night, the lion came creeping home to its lair. It was a tremendous creature, fierce and terrible. Hercules twanged his bow and sent an arrow flying. The arrow struck the beast, but so tough was its hide that the sharp point glanced aside and fell harmless. The lion snarled, showed its fierce teeth, and looked about for its foe. A second arrow Hercules shot, but it glanced aside like the first. Ere he could shoot a third, the lion had espied him. It crouched and sprang straight at his throat. Hercules knocked it aside with a powerful blow from his club, then, as it rose, ramping and clawing the air, he seized its neck with both hands and hung on fast till he slew it. His first task thus accomplished, Hercules went back to Eurystheus, wearing the skin of the lion over his shoulder, while the head of the beast rested on his own like a kind of helmet. Henceforth, Hercules was always to be distinguished by the lion's skin which he wore and the enormous club which he carried. When he came in such fashion into Eurystheus's presence, the coward was as frightened as though he had suddenly seen the Nemean lion itself before him. Yet when he was somewhat calmed, he said, Hercules has slain the Nemean lion, tis true. Still, the lion was but a beast after all. I will send him now to dispose of a hideous monster. So he sent for Hercules and bade him kill the powerful Lernean Hydra. This Hydra was a tremendous serpent with nine heads, one of which was immortal and could not possibly be slain. It had its den near a fountain that supplied all the region about with water, and it drove the unfortunate peasants away, so they had no means whatever whereby to slake their thirst. Hercules took with him his young nephew, Iolus, and off they started. In an oozy, evil-smelling marsh, they found the hydra, twisting its nine ugly heads in the air and breathing forth poison. Hercules made at it at once, but whenever he cut off a head, two grew in its place, so at every stroke... It only became more formidable. Ho, Iolus, set fire to yon grove of young trees, cried Hercules, and keep me supplied with the burning brands. Then he applied a brand to the neck wherever he cut off a head, and so prevented the new heads from growing. At length, the immortal head alone was left. This Hercules had cleaved from the body, but it still spit its venomous poison as fiercely as before. So Hercules rolled a huge rock over it, 
and left it buried deep where it could never do further harm. Now when Eurystheus found that his cousin had slain the Hydra as well as the lion, he began to think there was no evil creature that Hercules could not kill. But, he mused, his third task shall be harder still. After all, it is no great task to kill. I shall bid him bring me alive the fierce Erymanthian boar. Accordingly, he gave orders, and off went Hercules as before. Straight to Mount Erymanthus, he went and struggled long with the famous wild boar. But he caught him at length with his naked hands and brought him back on his shoulders. When King Eurystheus saw Hercules coming home with the boar alive on his shoulders, he was so badly frightened that he ran and jumped into a great bronze pot in one corner of his palace, pulling down the cover in haste to keep himself well out of sight. He did not run so quickly, however, but that Hercules caught just a glimpse of him as the cover went banging down. Ho, ho, he cried out gravely, but with a twinkling eye. This pot is just the place in which to keep a boar that is like to tear men to pieces. And he quickly lifted the lid and popped in the boar on top of the king. Loud was the outcry, you may be sure, till Hercules dragged out the two, the king in one hand, the boar in the other, both kicking, struggling, roaring. His strength seems equal to any deed said Eurystheus to himself. Yet will I get the best of him this time by setting a task that demands not strength, but fleetness of foot and superhuman endurance? Then he summoned Hercules to him and bade him bring him alive the stag of Diana. This stag had often befooled the hunters of that region. It was most marvelously fleet of foot, and few had ever seen it. But report had said it had horns of gold and hoofs of brass. It could make the most wonderful leaps and was never wearied no matter how long the dogs might have chased it. It had been seen browsing oftener than elsewhere close to the steps of Diana's temple, and many people believed it was under the protection of that goddess. So Hercules set out for the temple of Diana and watched and waited patiently. At last it appeared, the golden antlered creature, a sight of wondrous beauty. Every muscle a quiver it stood, cautious and alert, ready to dart away at the slightest whisper of danger. Hercules sprang towards it at once. It gave a mighty leap and made off, swift as the flying wind. But Hercules made after it, hot on its heels. Over hill, over dale it flew, through forest and meadow, over shallow stream and broad deep river, on and on and on. A whole year long it ran, over nearly the whole of Europe, and a whole year long Hercules followed, till at last he wearied it out, and it fled back, exhausted and panting to seek shelter in Diana's temple. Even there Hercules would have seized it, but just then a flood of silver light shone gently round about, and there before him appeared a lovely lady in short white garments with a bow and quiver at her back and a half-moon on her crown. It was Diana herself, goddess of the moon and of the chase, and to her the stag ran trembling. You must not lay hands on this stag, she said. It belongs to me. But return to King Eurystheus, and tell him how your endurance has wearied it out, and how but for me you would have had it. I promise you, he shall consider that your fourth labor is accomplished. Now Eurystheus was almost at a loss how further to test such a Hercules, but he thought, I have tried his strength, his endurance, and agility. I will now try his wits, and send him on an adventure that only the devising of some skillful plan can ever accomplish. In the valley of Stymphalus, there had come an enormous flock of strange birds that did great damage to crops and herds and even carried off children. These birds had claws of iron and feathers of metal, 
sharp at the end, which they had the power of throwing down on their enemies. No fleetness of foot, endurance, or bodily strength could dispose of such foes as these that could not be prevented from darting up into the air out of reach. So Eurytheus bade Hercules save the valley of Stymphalus from these ugly birds. Hercules wisely decided at once not to fight with such creatures. Instead, he went quietly into the deep dark wood, where they had their nests by the side of a noisome pool. Holding his bronze shield above his head to protect himself from their feathers, he rang a great bell, and at the same time beat on his shield with his lance. Frightened at this hideous noise, the birds flew up in such numbers that they darkened all the sky. As they flew over Hercules' head, their feathers fell fast, like hail on his shield. But he continued to ring the bell and beat the shield till every one of the birds had disappeared from the place, so frightened by the noise that none ever dared return. Thereafter, Eurystheus set Hercules five well-nigh impossible labors more. First, he must clean out in one day the filthy stables of King Aegeus, wherein the king had kept three thousand oxen for thirty years without ever cleansing their stalls. The refuse was piled mountain high, but Hercules dug a trench, turned the waters of two great rivers through the stables, and cleaned them thoroughly in one day. Then he must fetch to Mycena alive the raging white bull of Crete, but he seized it by its horns and held it so firmly in spite of its terrible struggles that the bull saw it had met its master and followed him like a lamb. For his eighth labor, he captured the savage man-eating horses of King Diomedus. For the ninth, he brought back the girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, a fierce tribe of warlike women who were never defeated in battle. For the tenth, he overcame the giant Geryon with his three great bodies, his three great heads, and six arms that waved like a windmill. When Hercules always succeeded, his cousin was in despair. For his eleventh labor, Eurystheus set him what he deemed the most impossible task of all. He bade him never again show his face in Mycenae unless he brought back three golden apples from the Garden of Hesperides, for he knew full well that no man on earth knew where to find that garden. But Hercules would not be daunted. He set out to westward where the sky glows golden at sunset. There, thought he, behind that golden gate should lie such a garden of golden fruit. He journeyed long and he journeyed far, but at last he came to a beautiful spot on the banks of a river, where a band of graceful river nymphs played hide-and-seek mid the rocks. As soon as they perceived the hero, they ran laughing with ropes of flowers to seize him and make him their prisoner. Then they led him into a shady beech grove, where they bade him sit on a grassy knoll and offered him refreshment of luscious purple grapes. But Hercules would not linger. He begged the nymphs to tell him where lay the Garden of Hesperides, of which he was in search. You must seek out Proteus, the old man of the sea, they told him. He knows every land whereon the ocean laps, but he will never tell you this secret unless you compel him. You must catch him and hold him fast, no matter what may happen, until he tells you the truth. Thanking the nymphs for their kindness, Hercules again set out. He followed the river on and on till he heard the mighty boom of the sea. Then he advanced cautiously to the shore, and there he saw, fast asleep, lulled by the roar of the waters, a little old man whose hair and beard flowed down like a tangle of seaweed. Here, for certain, was the old man of the sea himself, and no doubt at all about it. So Hercules stepped forward, quickly seized him by an arm and a leg, and held him fast. Tell me, he cried, where lies the Garden of Hesperides? Proteus awoke in a fright, and the next instant, Hercules found he was holding in his hands no little man, but a struggling stag. The change was astounding enough, but still Hercules held on tight. 
Then the stag became a seabird, screaming to be free. The seabird changed to a fierce three-headed dog. The three-headed dog to a savage giant. The giant to a monstrous snake. But the more terrifying were the forms which the old man assumed, the tighter Hercules held him. At last, perceiving that Hercules could not be frightened into letting him go, Proteus appeared in his own rightful form once more and told him the truth. Go down into Africa, he said. When the giant Atlas holds up the sky, an Atlas will get the apples for you. So Hercules set out for Africa, but he had scarcely touched the African shore when he was attacked by the terrible giant Antaeus, who let no man pass him alive. This giant was son of the earth, and the most difficult of all giants to conquer, for whenever he was knocked down, he gained fresh strength from the dust, and sprang up stronger than ever. But Hercules, knowing it was from the earth his strength had come, lifted him high above his head and held him there, struggling and kicking, separated from the source of his power, till the life was crushed out of him. Then he went again on his way. Being wearied somewhat by the struggle, he soon lay down for a little rest and fell asleep. Suddenly he awoke, feeling as if he had been stung by a thousand insects. As he sat up and rubbed his eyes, what should he see about but a multitude of pygmies, tiny people no larger than bumblebees, who had climbed up over his body and attacked him with their tiny bows and arrows. Another man might have been angered by their little teasing stings, but Hercules only laughed with a loud, resounding guffaw, whereat the pygmies all ran away, save for a very few that Hercules caught in his hand, and tied up in a corner of his lion skin to take back home to Eurystheus. After this, Hercules wandered on and on till he saw looming up before him a mountain it looked to be, yet it was only a giant so tall that the clouds hung about his face like a beard and drifted around his shoulders. He was holding up his hands and on these and his head he bore the blue dome of the sky. At last, here was Atlas. In Hercules, nothing daunted by the fearful weight of the heavens under which even Atlas groaned, offered to relieve the giant by bearing the burden himself, if Atlas would get for him three golden apples from the Garden of the Hesperides. Atlas was more than willing, for the nymphs who guarded the apples were his nieces, and to him the adventure was nothing more than a holiday. So Hercules climbed a mountain nearby, to be of the giant's height, took the sky on his shoulders, and bore its tremendous weight while Atlas went off for the apples. In due time, back came the giant, but so much had he enjoyed his holiday that he sought by a trick to give Hercules the slip and leave him forever with the sky on his shoulders. Hercules saw through the trick, however, outwitted the clumsy fellow, and made safely off with the apples. Now that Hercules had accomplished eleven of the twelve labors, Eurystheus was beside himself. He could think of only one task more that it seemed no man could ever achieve. He would send Hercules down into the underworld the dark and gloomy abode of Pluto, to bring thence the hideous three-headed watchdog Cerberus. Who that had entered these gloomy gates had ever been known to return? This would of a certain be the end of Hercules, for here, men said, was the abode of death. Hercules journeyed away till he came to a deep chasm between two black and frowning rocks. Far, far below gleamed waters black as ink, and now and again strange rumblings, as of thunder shook the earth. Here was the only entrance to the underworld. Still, Hercules knew no fear. Down into the deep black hole he climbed. There before him, guarding the way, he saw Cerberus with his three savage heads and his tail like a snake. The dog let him enter readily. It would be when he sought again to go out that the creature would make at him. 
Straight to Pluto's throne, through the dark and dreary shadows, went Hercules, without once turning aside. Of Pluto himself, he demanded permission to carry his watchdog back to Mycenae. Pluto was struck with his daring. Hercules, said he, you have done and suffered much, and proved yourself a true hero. Go, therefore, you shall take my watchdog back, if you can conquer him barehanded. So Hercules returned once more to the gate. There stood Cerberus, no more quiet, but bristling with rage, showing his savage teeth, and crouching, ready to spring. Hercules lost no time. He seized the dog on the spot with his vice-like grip, and dragged him straight off to Eurystheus. When Eurystheus saw this remarkable sight, when he saw that Hercules had conquered even death, and come back from that underworld whence men said none could ever return, he at once set his cousin free. At length the terms of his bondage had all been fulfilled. Nevertheless, Eurystheus strictly forbade Hercules ever again to enter the gates of Mycenae. Thereafter, Hercules, now at last his own master, wandered over the earth, ridding the world of many a monstrous evil and doing mighty deeds for the good of all mankind. When the end of his earth journey came, he laid himself down on a funeral pyre and bade men set it aflame. Bright, purifying flames sprang leaping up about him. All that could ever die, they burned away. Then the real Hercules, the immortal Hercules, came out from the fire all shining and glorious. A rainbow appeared in the sky. Lo, it was Iris's bridge that led from earth to heaven. A moment after, the clouds broke away. Iris, in all her shimmering colors, appeared, and Mercury with his winged shoes. Over the rainbow bridge, they led the immortal Hercules, as the maid of his dream had promised, to Mount Olympus itself, there to live forever among the gods, with all who are truly heroes. So there's one version of the tale of Hercules. I don't know if that's the definitive version of Hercules. It's certainly different from the Disney movie, right? But that's the Greek mythology that I grew up with. And if you listen to some of those adventures in there, you can detect little bits and pieces of things we see in movies and video games to this day. The stuff we live, the stuff we watch, the stuff we play on our consoles, a lot of that stuff has its origins in old mythology. Cerberus. For everybody who watches me on Mass Effect Mondays, Cerberus is the guardian of hell and also the name of the villainous corporation in Mass Effect. I mean, could it be a more perfect analogy? And how many quests did Hercules have to do? It's called The Labors of Hercules, but boy, it's just like a series of quests in any adventure game we've ever played. But yeah, those are the kinds of stories that I grew up with. My mother read some to me, but I would pull those books out and I'd read some of those stories myself because they were fascinating to me. I loved those old stories. I guess that's why I'm a bit of a storyteller now. I may not have slain a hydra in my day, but boy, I made that first phone call to a girl and that was scary, man. Really scary. I may not ascend the bridge to heaven as a result of doing that, but boy, it was a Herculean task for me, let me tell you. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's story time. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for taking the time to be here every week. I really do appreciate it. You guys stay safe out there. Take care of yourselves. Be careful. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you. <laughs>